We are in our second sermon uh, in the series on the book of Daniel. We just uh, just kicked it off last week, and so last week we kind of uh, introduced the book, kind of set up uh, what's going on in the book, and and how uh, the book of Daniel asks hard questions uh, about our relation to the culture around us. Like, how do we uh, fit in? How do we think uh, through the 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 the, the things that are going on around us and the place that we live. How, what, what's a good matrix for us to kind of understand uh, and decide how we're going to live in, 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 uh, as a result of that. Okay, and so, so that's what we're, we're talking about in the book of Daniel. And we're going to be kind of talking about that throughout the fall. The book of Daniel has just got a bunch of really good stuff on that. Um, and uh, so if you want to go back uh, last week, kind of the, the big thing we talked about last week was this uh, idea of exile. That's kind of where the book of Daniel starts off. It's the setting for the book uh, of Daniel, and it's the setting for the people of God um, as they are, are in their exile. And we talked last week about how uh, we are in a situation that is in some ways similar, in some ways different to theirs, um, but actually gets called exile in the, in the book of First Peter. So if you want to go back and, and hear that, you missed it for some reason, we, uh, you can go back and listen to our podcast. And also, we just have been uh, recently starting to record our sermons on YouTube. Uh, so if you want to go check that out, it's on the website or just uh, search Resurrection City Church on YouTube and you can, uh, you can find out all that. So anyway, um, we're going to keep going with that theme today. And we're actually going to start to really dive into the book and start to see uh, what Daniel and his friends do um, in the relation to the culture that they're in. Um, and by culture, just maybe it's helpful to kind of define what that means. The word culture is a really uh, ubiquitous term that gets used a lot by, in a lot of different ways. And, and for us, we're just talking about um, the set of like commonly or dominantly held assumptions uh, about the way that the world is that get expressed in all sorts of different ways in a certain place, right? It gets expressed in kind of the, the, the aphorisms or the, like the, the, the common sense wisdom that people share. It gets expressed in, in the way that we see the world and, and how we learn to see the world through schools that we go to or what we learn from other people in different, in different settings, through the values that we have. Uh, we see our culture expressed in technology, and certainly, uh, new technology influences our culture. Just think about how uh, different our culture is today than it was 20, 30 years ago when the internet and, and smartphones didn't exist, right? Just, just think about the way that, that that changes how we see the world. Um, and so technology can have a huge impact on that. And then it gets expressed in media, right? Books, TV shows, music, all of these things are are expressing a viewpoint about uh, a, an assumption about how the world is, right? A way we should view the world, how we should interact with it. And that's kind of culture, right? And that, and that gets kind of uh, put together in, in sort of um, different institutions, right? In government or in cities and in media organizations and in businesses. Uh, each of them are, are, are kind of uh, institutionalizing culture in different ways and, and different um, institutions within the same society will have slightly different cultures, right? There's many different cultures within the larger culture. Some of them are overlapping, some of them are not, but that's just kind of what we're talking about here today, all right? So th this, this stuff that's going on around us, how do, we, how do we think through that, okay? Now, um, there have been, uh, 
you know, lots of assessments of this throughout history. And a, and a couple of famous ones, we're not going to get into them today, but if you do want to read more about, about this, um, you can read the book Christ and Culture by H. Richard Nyberg. Um, this one was written in the 60s, but it's kind of been as a really important, kind of kicked off kind of the study of like uh, of Christians relating to, to culture. And then the book Center Church by Tim Keller, he gets into it too. Um, but today I just want to talk about three primary ways that we can respond to culture. And I, I'm stealing this from another pastor, and I don't know if it's, he made it up or if he stole it from somebody else. Uh, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter, I guess, at this point. But um, Okay, so the three primary ways that, that Christians have, have typically responded to culture are, are expressed in three R words, okay? So the first one is reject culture. We say culture is bad, and we're called to reject it, to call it evil, to distance ourselves from it, and to stay pure from it. Because getting too close to it, getting too in- intertwined with it, uh, we might get some of that impurity of culture on us. Right, and, and there's a lot of examples of this. I know growing up, I, was, I always was told Harry Potter, I couldn't read Harry Potter books or watch the movies because they're about witchcraft, and I might get into witchcraft or something like that if I, if I read the Harry Potter books, right? So that's like one approach to culture that says it's bad, we should, we should reject it, and maybe create our own sort of Christian versions of those, of those things. Instead of reading Harry Potter, read Chronicles of Narnia or something else, right? You kind of have these approved and, and non-approved uh, things. Now, throughout history, this is actually a really, um, a really like major way that a lot of Christians have uh, determined to uh, interact with culture. So like, if you think as far back as like the monks and, and monasteries, right? These things even, even still exist, but for a long time you had um, you had whole uh, groups of people that would kind of go off into like the desert or, or off into some secluded space and, and just live alone, right? Uh, trying intentionally to stay away from culture. Um, and, then, and then around the time of the Reformation into today, you have movements like the Amish that have formed and, and Anabaptists and, and Mennonites uh, traditions that have um, that have kind of taken a similar tact, not not you know to different degrees, right? Obviously, the Amish are are at the at the far end of that spectrum, and then you have Anabaptists or Mennonites today who are who are a little a little bit you know they're 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 still a part of culture um, in, in more in more uh, uh, robust ways, right? But that's that's you know so we see that like um, this is a, a way that Christians have 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 kind of done things throughout history, rejecting culture, saying the culture has fallen, sin is real. And we need to, to deal with that, all right? Now, the book of Daniel does not go that far, but it for sure has some things in common with this view, right? Um, uh, without God, Daniel will make really clear, without God, we are blind. God is the one who reveals to us his will. He's the one who reveals to us the way that the world actually is. And so um, we need to stay distinct and connected to him in order to truly, truly live in communion with him, all right? But Daniel will say... Um, that you don't necessarily need to completely reject culture or separate yourselves from it in order to remain distinct, all right? So, so that's one, one way Christians have, have responded to culture. A second way that Christians have responded to culture is by just receiving it, kind of taking it as it is and, and saying um, that, we, you know, we assume God is working and so whatever we see out in culture, if we think it's good, we'll take it as it is. And, and we're not going to challenge it, we're not going to critique it, and, and we're going to kind of treat it almost on the same level as, as Revelation itself, all right? This gets expressed today actually in all sorts of ways, I think. 
Uh, an obvious example would be more like mainline uh, churches. A lot of mainline churches have, have kind of taken, f- you know, things from the culture that they've seen and basically said, this is, this is what the gospel is. We see the gospel out there, and there's not much of a difference between a, a lot of mainline churches and, and the rest of culture in some ways, okay? That's one place. But there's also, like, like prosperity gospel churches, right? They're, they're taking what the culture says, that, like, your happiness and your flourishing in health and wealth is what is what matters the most and so we're going to kind of take that in and that's the gospel we're going to talk about you see that happen in prosperity uh, gospel churches where they're basically taking that aspect of culture and saying yeah that's what the gospel is and that's what we're going to talk about here right or, or or even in like very like political like you know Basically, uh, Christianity and Republicanism are the same thing, right? You see that in a lot of churches, too, where, where you're going to say, like, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to vote for this candidate this year and, uh, and to get out there and to, 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 to be active, active, active for, for this certain, like, uh, uh, ideology at, that is really very cultural, right, uh, at the end of the day. And it's not necessarily tied to the gospel. So, so you kind of see this get taken on in all sorts of, of different ways today where there is, like, a kind of a melding of the gospel with, with certain things that are coming from culture to where it's hard to disentangle where the gospel is and then where are these things that we're taking from culture. Now, I'm not even saying that those, that those things are bad, right, that those, that those examples I'm giving, that those things that they're taking in, they, that they're bad, they should reject them. I'm not necessarily saying that, but, like, we need to remember what's the gospel and what's not and differentiate between those things in order to, uh, to truly um, understand, like, what we should be doing and how we should be living and what, sh- what we should be at the forefront of our message as, as Christians, okay? So Daniel doesn't take this view either, we'll, we'll find. Now, Daniel definitely agrees with culture in some areas and is willing to kind of um, immerse himself in it and take on aspects of the culture, and, and we'll see that in this, in this uh, chapter we're talking about today specifically, but, um, but he's very keen to stay distinct and to maintain worship of God from the known revelation, Okay, all right, so that, that's, that's the second way. The third and kind of final way is redeeming culture. And this is more, I think, of what we see Daniel doing. Okay, Daniel is in the culture, he's engaging with it, he's taking certain things from the culture, and he's thinking through them, but he's trying to, to ask, how do I stay distinct? How do I take what I'm bringing into contact with and bring it into conformity so much as I can uh, with with the kingdom of God? How do I redeem that thing and, and, and bring, kind of retask it so that now it's being used for God's glory? Now it has like a gospel purpose as much as I possibly can, okay? We're going to kind of, we'll, we'll talk about this as we go, but this I think is the tax that we see, we see Daniel take more generally throughout the book, all right? So kind of keep that in mind as we move forward today and as we move forward uh, for the rest of this series, okay? Now, before we get into the text, I think it's probably helpful to get a, a good understanding of the actual, the culture that Daniel is dealing with, right? To understand, like, a little bit of history, a little bit of Babylon in particular, um, because that's where at least the beginning of the book really takes place, is Daniel is, is, is in the, the high court of the nation of Babylon. Okay, so just a little bit of background on Babylon. Um, Babylon and their king, Nebuchadnezzar, are, like, the big kids on the block in, in, in this part of the world. There's really, like... Like, they're the, they're, the, they're the main empire. They've kind of defeated all other challengers at this point, right? They defeated Assyria, which had kind of been the previous big kid on the block, 
right? And we, we see Assyria in the book of Jonah where, where he goes to the city of Nineveh and does, does some stuff there. He's preaching, trying to preach God's word there, right? Assyria at that time is like the big, the big kid on the block. But then Babylon comes along, takes out Assyria, and, and kind of keeps Egypt from regaining power as well. And in the process, they kind of, um, kind of move up ahead of everybody else. And, and Israel gets kind of caught in the middle of all of this stuff. Israel uh, tries to back the wrong horse. They try to align themselves with Egypt, and it actually gets them into trouble with Babylon. So Babylon makes Israel start paying tribute to them. Israel still is trying to get help from Egypt, and so Babylon comes in and says, fine, we're just going to, you're not going to, you know, we tried to be nice to you, but now we're going to come in, we're going to destroy your temple, we're going to burn your city down, and we're going to take a bunch of your people into exile to live in Babylon with us, all right? And so Babylon is like at the peak of their power at the time that this, this book is taking place, under Nebuchadnezzar. So you have like one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. That's, that's something that's there, right? It's this magnificent garden that, that people, we don't, we don't even really understand how they put it together today, right? The, the, apparently the walls of the city of Babylon were so thick that you could have chariot races on the outside of them. All right, so this is like a big deal. Like Babylon is not a, a country to be messed with. And they're the ones who have taken over uh, Israel. Now, eventually, um, Babylon gets taken over by the Medes and the Persians. They kind of come together to take over Babylon. And then they get taken out by Alexander and Greece when, when Alexander the Great kind of sweeps through uh, the, the known world and takes it all over. And then, and then Rome takes over after that. Okay, So it's just a succession of like, uh, you know, um, there's always a bigger fish, right? There's always something bigger that's coming along and taking over these, these big nations that kind of ascend to power until finally you get Rome, who stays in power for, for a really long time, and that's where we get to the New Testament, okay? So just to kind of locate what's going on in the book of Daniel and help you to understand, like, um, kind of the, the culture that Daniel finds himself in. They're in Babylon at the time where Babylon is at the peak of their power, all right? So, um, we're going to jump into the text now, so go ahead, and, and if you have a Bible with you, turn to Daniel 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 3, um, and we're going to move from there. Daniel is in your Old Testament, um, which is the first part of your Bible, and it's towards the end of that. Um, and so go ahead and turn, turn to that, and we'll read verses, uh, we'll start with verses 3 and 4 here, okay? So Daniel 1, 3 to 4. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king here is Nebuchadnezzar, he ordered Ashpenaz, who is the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylon, uh, Babylonians, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar says to uh, his, his, the chief of his pa- court officials, it's kind of like a, his chief of staff, right? Just like a, a president or a lot, of, a lot of people have like a chief of staff who kind of makes stuff happen. That's what Ashpenaz is, okay? So the king gives him the command. He goes out and he kind of directs the court officials or the people in like the king's cabinet to make stuff happen. All right, and he wants him to take um, some of these people that they've just brought in from Israel, some of, the, some of the sons of the nobility, and to put them into, like, Babylonian university. All right, now this is kind of like a common, a common thing that, that you would do if you were trying to pacify a nation that you had taken over. Is one of the best ways to do it is instead of, like, being really hostile and, and pushing and fighting them, is you take 
their people who will be their leaders in a, in a generation or two, um, and you, you, you immerse them in your culture so that they grow up learning all of the things that Babylon would teach their people. All right, and they learn the wisdom of Babylon, and, and they learn about the gods and the worship of Babylon. And it's a way to take those leaders who will then, um, after they've learned all of this stuff from living in Babylon, will then go back to their nation and lead their people in a very Babylonian way. There still will be Israelites, right? But they'll be leading Israel now as this, you know, at least in their mind, this very loyal country to them. Okay? And, and it all kind of starts by indoctrinating their youth. That's kind of the plan here for the Babylonians. Give them a good uh, Babylonian education. All right. So then we get to verse uh, 5 and 6 here. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is trying to turn this next generation of Israelites into good Babylonians. He's taken um, the ones who are part of like the noble class, the really good looking ones, the ones who will for sure be leaders, um, and, and, and they're going to they're gonna give them good Babylonian names, right? So that now their identity is found in these, these, these names that are Babylonian in nature, and they're going to start... You know, they're going to they're gonna eat well, right? He's going to say, like, give them the food from my table. Let's treat them really well so they really like us so that when they eventually come into power in their nation, they'll be really good, loyal uh, servants for us, okay? Um, and, so, and so this is kind of the tact that they're taking, all right? But Daniel resolved, this is verse 7, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Okay? Now, Daniel's not stupid. He understands what's going on here. So he says, um, he says, like, I I don't think I want to do this. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Now, we don't know why Daniel chose, like, the food. Okay? It doesn't actually like, make perfect sense to us. He was okay taking on the Babylonian name, okay? so he's willing to kind of assimilate himself to culture to that degree, but he has kind of said, um, I'm going to stop here at the food that I eat. Now, we, like I said, we don't know exactly why this food was the thing that he drew the line at, because it's actually not, you know, the, the, according to Torah, the, the Israel law, there are all sorts of like, um, correct ways to eat. Food, right? There's certain foods that are clean and certain foods that are unclean. And this doesn't actually follow that, so we're not totally sure why he said to do this. You know, maybe you say, like, he doesn't want to eat the meat because that would have been sacrificed uh, to idols in the Babylonian temple, so he didn't want to eat meat sacrificed to idols of another god. But the, the vegetables probably would have come from there too, so it doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily fit perfectly either. And so the best guess that we have here is that Daniel has just kind of said, 
listen, I think it's really important that we remain distinct. I understand what's going on here. It's important for us to remain loyal to God, to worship him alone, and to a certain extent, we're going to be willing to, to come into Babylon and, and be a part of this, this growing up in the Babylonian court. But we need to show that we're distinct in some way too. And so he chooses uh, food for some reason as the thing that he's going to decide to eat uh, to, to show that he's different. And so he's actually making a wager here, okay? He's wagering that remaining distinct will actually um, be blessed by God, that this thing that he's choosing will, will, will allow him to be blessed by God and actually will, will make it so that he is better equipped to serve the king in his court, right? Because this food is supposed to be really nourishing and make you, you know, nice, strong young leaders, right? That's the, the intent of this food. And Daniel says, I actually think we'll be better off, we'll be stronger and more better equipped to serve in the kingdom here if we remain distinct in eating this food. Okay, that's the wager that he's making uh, when, he, when he says to uh, the, 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 the chief of staff, Ashpenaz, I think we're, we're good, we're just going to eat the vegetables in the water. Okay? At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nursed than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learnings. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Okay? So we see here that Daniel's wager, his, his choice to remain distinct, pays off. God blesses it, and he remains distinct, and in such a way that, like, the rest of the Babylonian court officials take notice of this, and they start to kind of have everybody else start eating the way that the, the Israelites are doing, right? So they're kind of changing the culture of the court a little bit in what they're doing, because it makes them better off and more well-equipped to serve in the Babylonian court. And so, and so we see God bless them by giving them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, it says, we will see that take place as we move forward in the book of Daniel. And it's actually really important. It's not just important that Daniel can interpret visions because there just happens to be some dreams in this book, but it's actually, we'll, we'll see this next week. I'm not going to get into it now, but we'll see the importance of visions and dreams in Babylon in particular, okay? So God giving him understanding of, of dreams uh, and visions actually makes him uh, excel in, in Babylon in particular, all right? We'll, 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 we'll keep talking about that next week, okay? But, but the key thing to note here is that God blesses him by making him excel in Babylon as he remains distinct. At the end of the time set by the king uh, to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And then not on the screen here is verse 21. Um, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, okay? So basically, Daniel stays in this. He's very young at this time. We don't know how young he is, but he could be, he's probably in his teens at this, at this point, right? He stays in the service of, of the king to the point where there's a, actually a transition of, of empire here, okay? So Daniel stays, stays in for that long, per, perhaps into his 80s, we, we'll, we'll find, okay? So um, we'll, we'll kind of see this is how it takes place, all right? So that's all we're going to talk about in this book today, but I really want us to kind of uh, break down and really kind of think about what just happened here because it has a lot of bearing on us as well today because we may not be forced to eat a certain way, okay, but there are 
pressures on us as well. There are things that we are going to be called to be conformed to in our society as well. And one of the big places where that takes, where we're going to find that especially happening is in our places of work. All right, and so what I did this week is I kind of just reached out, I kind of asked a few, you know, I asked around to a few people, just like, what are some of the things that you find uh, pressure in your work culture, like, that, that you find is kind of pressing in on you, and because, you know, you're a Christian, you find this sometimes to be hard to get in line with or not sure what to do with, okay, but you still feel this pressure anyway, and I want us to just kind of talk about some of those things, because I'm imagining that, that this is, that a lot of these things I'm about to kind of point out are things that you guys feel wherever you work or in your school or, or even, even if you're staying at home with, with, as a parent, you're finding certain pressures like this as well, okay? So he, here are some of them. Okay, first of all, conform to what's called hustle culture. Now, this is like, this is like uh, a something we, we've seen especially kind of pop up, and especially in big cities, really urban areas, um, is this idea that like you need to be working your butt off, okay, over 40 hours a week if you really want to be successful in whatever job you're in. If you really want to stand out, if you really want to be good at what you're doing, you have to work nonstop, basically. There's this famous tweet that Elon Musk um, the, uh, the guy who runs um, Tesla and, sp- and SpaceX and everything, that he, he tweeted this out a couple years ago. No one ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. All right? So what he's saying is, like, if you really want to change the world, if you really want to make an impact and be successful, you can't just work those 40 hours a week. You can't work from, from 9 to 5, and that's it. If you really want to make something happen, you got to work constantly. Okay? That's one of the things that, that we are, are, are feeling in this culture, no matter what we're doing. If we really want to stand out, really want to be good at what we're doing, we got to pour ourselves into our work unhealthily. Okay? So that, that's one thing that we, we, we find. Okay? Second thing is we're results-oriented. We're a very results-oriented society. We, we see the world in terms of accomplishments or the end result. Okay? It doesn't really matter how things get done. Your character that's being formed in the, in the process of doing your work or, or whatever it is isn't as important as the results that take place at the very end of it, okay? Your motives don't matter. What it, what it does to your family and friends uh, don't matter. What virtues are being built don't matter. It just matters that you're getting the job done and getting the desired results, okay? Who you're becoming while that takes place isn't as important as what happens at the very end. And so we'll put up with a lot of shady stuff sometimes or, or unethical stuff we might be tempted to cross lines if it means we're getting the job done if we're winning if we're finding whatever success looks like in our place of work a, a big one uh, i got uh, several people kind of have echoed this to me and it is finding our worth in our jobs okay saying like who i am is fundamentally tied to whatever my title is wh- however successful i am in my industry maybe even exactly what industry i'm in is so much a part of who I am um, that that like that that is that is like non-negotiable. Okay, I, and and so you're constantly trying to appease um, appease like what you think the standards are for for success in this certain place in order to give yourself value and worth. Okay, this is a huge one in our culture today. Another one is seeing money as king, whether it's for the company you work for or for yourself. Okay, it's all about making money because money is an easy way to kind of measure success. It's an easy way to put, put a doll or a, a number value onto success. Is this how much money is being brought in? 
right? Are we making the shareholders happy? Am I making a certain amount of money in my job? And if I'm not, like maybe I'm thinking about moving on to something else that pays a little bit better. Um, and, and, so, and so that's kind of the, the pursuit of everything, even if it hurts people or even if, again, it's a result, very results-oriented thing. Even if you're becoming someone that you don't really like in the process of getting that money, it still is what, what matters. Another big one is boasting about our accomplishments, right? believing the lie that we won't get noticed if we're not kind of boasting about what we've done and how well we've done it. Okay? And so humility, which is like at the very center of Christianity, isn't a value. It's actually a weakness. It's actually kind of something that people look down upon. Because if you don't let someone know how great you are, how are you ever going to get ahead? How is anyone going to notice you if you're not kind of boasting about how great you are? Just think about, like, in politics. <laughs> this is a great example of this. Like, every single politician describes themselves in, like, Messiah-like terms. Like, I'm going to fix, every, here's all the problems in the world, and if you elect me, I'm going to fix every single one of them, right? How much, like, like, that's all politicians are doing to get elected, is basically boasting about how great they are, right? And, and that trickles into all sorts of other stuff, too. We feel the need to kind of boast about how successful we are, um, whether it's to our coworkers or to our bosses or even people outside of our business. All right, ambition, climbing a ladder um, is, is huge. If you're not moving up, you're worthless, right? If, if you're in the same position for more than a couple years, then, then you're probably not very good at what you're doing, okay? That's, that's another big one, okay? There, there can't be any good in staying put in a position I'm, I'm in, even if, like, I'm actually doing a lot of good in that position, right? Even if, even if people might look at me and say, like, boy, that person's been there for, for 20 years. Like, they must not be that talented or else they would have moved up by now, right? That totally pays no regard to, like, the actual good of whatever job that person has, right? It kind of says that, like, what, what matters is just moving up, okay? Not the work you're doing, not the, not the value that it might have. Even if it's hard work or doesn't pay very much, right, there's still going to be dignity in whatever work you're doing, even if that's all you ever do right? But, but this idea that we need to be climbing the ladder, and we need to have this ambition, kind of says that that stuff doesn't really matter. That stuff's not very important. That's kind of the, the implied um, uh, truth that's being communicated by that. And then the last one, I had a few people talk to me about this one, is this, the way to fit in is by gossiping about your coworkers. Like, this is a huge pull for a lot of people, is, is, is getting around the water cooler, right, and figuring out what the latest scuttlebutt is, and, and trying to figure out, like, what, wh you know, what, whoa, whoa, that person did what? Are you kidding me? Like, you know, finding out all that stuff, and then kind of uh, going around and spreading that around, right? And, and really what it is, is it's pulling down your coworkers. It kind of, I think it, it can be tied to, like, boasting about your accomplishments, right? But, like, if, if your coworkers are, are people that are being gossiped about, then that will naturally make you look better, right? And so, and, and so, like, from what I've been told, like, being, fitting in in some places means gossiping or complaining about coworkers or complaining about your spouse or complaining about your kids or, or different things. Like, this is what marks a lot of workplace culture. Um, and, like, and this is a, a temptation or pressure that a, a lot of Christians have, okay? So, so these are things that, like, I imagine you, you, in your place of work or whatever it is your calling is, you felt at least one of these things before. Now, what we have seen from Daniel here is that Daniel uh, chooses to respect the Babylonian culture that he's a part of, okay? He does not say to it, 
I'm going to be hostile towards this. It's all bad, and I'm going to fight it, and, I, and I'm going to show it complete disrespect because I disagree with all of it, okay? Instead, he says, I'm going to try to respect this culture that I'm a part of, um, not be hostile towards it, even though I'm trying to, to remain distinct, okay? All, all those things that I talked about before are for, for lots of different reasons, are things that we as Christians want to remain distinct from. We want to say, we want to say, like, um, maybe I'm okay taking, you know, climbing the ladder is not a bad thing. Making money is not a bad thing. But it's not the sole content of who I am. My worth is in Christ alone, right? We, we have different ways that we look for the, those things or different responses as Christians to those pressures we feel at work. But we don't need to be hostile. We don't need to be that guy who is, like, emailing all our coworkers with sermon clips where, you know, some, some pastor, you know, you get your pastor Joel up there critiquing all of the workplace values that you, you find at your place of work, right? We don't need to be hostile or arrogant towards it, okay? That's actually a good way to get gossiped about if you're going to do that. But the temptation to complain or disdain the culture that we're in is actually itself part of the culture, right? We talked about gossiping and complaining, right? That should not be our response as Christians. Um, we should be showing respect to the culture we're in. Because by showing respect, people will believe that like Daniel, right? Daniel has said, I have the best in mind for Babylon. I think that if I remain distinct and I don't assimilate myself into this culture, I will actually be better fit to, uh, to bless Babylon and in my service, okay? That's what he's kind of wagering on. By, by eating this food, I'm going to be better equipped to serve this, this place. And, and so he's showing immense respect for the culture. And when people see that, they're going to be more willing uh, to give you the benefit of the doubt when you don't align with the culture. You're going to be the willing to, to, to have an open mind um, to listen to maybe challenges or critiques that you have to certain things within the workplace that you, that you work at, right? Because they know that you care about it. They know you respect it. And you have the good of that culture in mind when you're saying hey, I'm going to remain distinct. I'm not going to engage kind of in, in these pressures that I feel, all right? So respecting the culture actually allows us to maybe potentially critique it at times when that's necessary. And it's also possible to learn things when we're being willing to listen and respect. John Goldingay says, the wise person knows how to learn from the wisdom of other peoples without being overcome by it, okay? And this takes into account a couple of like, uh, like a couple of core like doctrines of Christianity. The first is common grace that believes that God is working out in the world outside of the church, right? By making it rain, right? By, by helping us to learn about fire, by you know, helping us to, to have wisdom about how electricity works, different things like that. God is actually blessing the society by, by revealing uh, wisdom about the way that the world works, right? This happens in, in, in the medical sciences, I think, in major ways, right? Helping us learn how to care well for people. And that's not revelation that's necessarily coming from the Bible. We believe God is active um, in, in all sorts of ways in revealing how the world works. And the other one is, is natural theology. This is kind of the other doctrine, is, is we can learn about God by studying the world that he created, okay? Culture can have learned something about God and the way that the world is, and we should be the first to admit that when we see that that's true, all right? But, but the difference is that, um, the difference is that we're going to learn from that, but we're not going to be overcome by it. That's what it means to remain distinct. That's what's different about kind of what I'm talking about here and then that, like, receive aspect of how we engage with culture that I talked about at the beginning, okay? If you want examples of this, just look around the room or just think about some of the stuff that we're doing here at Res City. I just plugged our YouTube uh, channel that we have, right? And, and, and our, we, we have sermons out on iTunes. We have an Instagram. We have a Facebook. I don't know if you guys knew about this, but we use all of these different platforms that are part of the culture 
and we're trying to redeem those. We're trying to use those um, to further our mission, which we believe God has called us to do, to proclaim the gospel and to see the gospel take place in the lives of the people in our city. And we're using stuff um, in, in the culture to do that. We, we use budgets, okay? Budgets are not in the Bible, in case you were wondering, right? But we use budgets, and we rely on them pretty, like, heavily to, to help make the church work. Sound systems are not in the Bible, right? But we're using it for, for a lot of good means, okay? We can learn stuff from the rest of the culture without being overcome by it. And, 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 we, and so res- if we show some respect, we'll, we'll be able to learn some stuff that we can then use, we can re- redeem and use for the service of God and the gospel, Okay? That's one thing that we, we see here in the, in the book of Daniel. The, the second observation and point of application that I have is, is that Daniel and his companions are elevated as they follow God, not in abandoning him. Okay? So, that we, so, so what we should take from that is that we can't believe that true success can only come by assimilating or, or accommodating or giving up our values. Okay? I think that's one of the big, big lies. And this is one of the big keys, I think, of this passage is that we can believe that in remaining distinct, we can actually still find excellence in whatever we're doing. Um, I, I remember when I, when I was back at NDSU, I talked about uh, the hustle culture earlier, right? When I was back at NDSU, I was, I was a part of the coaching staff on the football team, and one of the big things we talked about was the grind. That was the word we used, okay? There's a grind that we have that's going on. If we're not working 24-7, our opponents might be getting uh, a step up on us because they might be working harder than us, which is going to translate into more wins for them, and it's going to translate into getting fired <laughs> for us, okay? That's kind of the, was the culture. So there was like, basically, you know, we were like, yeah, maybe working all this time isn't super healthy, okay? But we're going to lose games if we don't, okay? We can't have excellence unless we do this thing, unless we assimilate to our ourselves to this culture, we can't find success. And that's something we're going to be told as Christians constantly, that you can't find success or excellence in your workplace unless you conform to these different, uh, these different elements or pressures as Christians. And Daniel is telling us here, this is an example for us, that that's a lie, okay? That's not true. We do not have to trade uh, following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, uh, living in a Christian way in order to find success where we work. Okay? And many times it will actually um, set us apart in lots of different ways. The, 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 the values that we, we show will, will actually be um, beautiful things to the culture around us. I, I've heard lots of stories of, of people who ha- have said, like, yeah, like, my boss says things like, I want to hire more, do you have any more Christians, like, you know, that, that you could recommend to come work here because we really like you Christians. You, you guys actually make our company a better place when you come in and just are doing it in a Christian way, right? Kind of, kind of living out your values within our workplace actually makes us a better company, all right? And that, that's what Daniel is, is talking to us about, is this idea that we don't need to trade uh, worship of Jesus for excellence. Now, next week, I want to talk a little bit about more. We'll dig into this more, this idea of like how following Jesus actually makes us stand out, okay? Because we'll see that a little bit more uh, in chapter 2, okay? But I want you to really just kind of think about that and, and ask yourself, like, where am I being told this, this lie that I need to conform or else I'm not going to find any success in the place of work that I'm in, okay? Because success and excellence matter to God, okay? They do. And, and, ba- and Daniel and his friends are... Comp- you know, excel in the place that they're in, but they, ex- they do it in a way that says, let's remain distinct in the process of that. And actually, this is not the only place in Scripture where we find someone saying, 
I'm going to remain distinct. I'm going to remain worshiping God because I'm not going to trade that for what seems like some cheap or easy success. And that's actually uh, found um, in the, 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 the temptation narrative of Jesus in the wilderness. All right? This is where Jesus, he's, he's just been baptized. It's right at the beginning of a couple of the Gospels. Um, and, and he goes out into the wilderness after being baptized for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he doesn't eat or drink anything, and he encounters Satan out in the desert. And Satan comes to him with these uh, three different temptations for him uh, to follow. And, and I think one of the things that um, we don't always realize is that these aren't, um, these are temptations. Uh, these aren't trying to get Jesus um, to necessarily give up his vocation as Messiah, right? But they're trying to convince him to accomplish his mission Satan's way, all right? So he says, he says things to him like, um, hey, all these kingdoms of the earth, right? You're the king, right? That's, that's what you're here to be is the king, right? Well, guess what? I have control over all the nations of the earth, and so I'll give them to you. Just, just bow down and worship me. That's all you need to do in order to get what you came here for. That's the easy way. It's really easy. How hard is it to kneel, right? It, it'll take you 10 seconds, okay? That's all you need to do. I'll, I'll, and, then, and then I'll just give it to you. You don't need to go through all this work of going on the cross and dying and rising again, you know, to make this stuff happen. Just, just get on a knee. Just bow before me. Just kind of do things my way or do things the dominant way of the culture and you'll get what you want. It'll be easier, and you'll get the end results. Satan is very, uh, very results-oriented, apparently, <laughs> is what we, what we see here. But, but Jesus says, when, when he hears Satan uh, whispering in his ear, saying, whatever you want, whatever you're trying to accomplish, I, I can give that to you, right? You want to set people free? Yeah, I can make that happen for you. You want to defeat the enemy, which, which is Rome? Yeah, I'll, I'll let you do that. I'll help you do that, okay? Jesus is... You can imagine, he's in a place like many of us are in our places of work where he's saying, um, he's saying like maybe he's right, right? At least that temptation creeps into his mind, right? Maybe, maybe I can see all, I see all the success of all these people who are, who are living in these ways that are ac- according to the dominant culture and I've been sent to, to kind of u- upend that, right? But maybe I can accomplish my mission an easier way by just giving in to some of these temptations, right? That's a, is a real temptation for Jesus, we know. It was, it was a difficult thing for him, but he refuses to give in, and he chooses the hard way of the cross. He chooses to remain distinct and worship God, right, which, which leads to some suffering for him, but it is the true way to find the success, to find the excellence in setting us free that he came to accomplish. So we don't have to work nonstop, right? So we don't have to pour ourselves into our work in order to be okay with God or, or to attain salvation or to be right, okay? We can find that through Christ alone. Okay, it's by grace, not our works, so that we don't have to boast. We don't have to boast in our own accomplishments about how righteous or amazing we are. We don't have to do any of that because Christ has done it for us. We don't have to play the game of, uh, that we feel. Our success and our failures don't matter because we are putting our hope and our trust in the success of Jesus on the cross, remaining distinct, pushing back against Satan, saying, I'm going to do it this way so that I can set people free to follow me. Okay? We are relieved of, of ambition, of, of thinking we need to attain something on our own because Christ has, has attained that for us, okay? His ambition was to die on our behalf. His ambition was to be crushed for our sins, okay? And because of that, we don't have to, we don't have to, to, to lean on that stuff. We don't have to believe the lie of the culture. 
So what we're going to do is, is, as always, we're going to end with communion where we, where, we, uh, where we remind ourselves of that work of Jesus to go to the cross on our behalf. Okay? We're gonna, we do this in remembrance of him every single Sunday to where we can tune ourselves back to that. We can remind ourselves uh, that we worship Jesus and him alone. Okay? And we do not have to, to, to worship these other gods that call us to live uh, in, in different ways. So if you would all pray with me, and then, and then we will enter into that time of prayer. Um, just, just come forward here. Um, we have the bread for you to tear a piece off and, and the, the grape juice for you to take a drink of. And we just ask that you're a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be a member or a regular tender here of Rest City. Father, we thank you for um, sending your son who did not take the easy way of assimilating the culture, of, of giving in to the temptation or the lie that in order to succeed and to have the excellence in his mission, he needs to compromise uh, the gospel itself, Lord. We thank you that we have him as an example. We have Daniel as an example. I pray that you'd empower us to live that, to remain distinct for the goal of truly blessing and, and seeing a benefit to the places that we're at, to the culture that we're in. Help us to not be hostile to it, but help us to also be discerning in how we interact with it as well, Lord. Help us to worship you alone and give us uh, the power and the grace uh, available to do that. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.